Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is Dan Taylor. My name is John Licton. Join us twice a month at the International Schools Podcast as we have conversations with international school leaders, educators, and entrepreneurs working and engaging in the world of international schools and education. And finally, just to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Asa for Education, for making this podcast happen. Now, on to the episode. Hi, uh, welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have a returning guest, uh, Denry uh, Machin. I think that's how you say your name. I got it wrong the first time. Is that right? Machin? Machin? <laughs> Slightly wrong again, Dan. Machin. As, as I said the last time, I've been called far worse. I should have I should have listened to the last episode. And 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 Denry was on as a returning guest. He's written a very good book called uh, The Teacher's Guide to International Schools, um, which I can see on the shelf behind him. And a uh, great book. Uh, every, everyone should read it. Everybody who's doing podcasts and has got books has to have their book on the bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I felt left out not having it last time. I don't have it. Yeah, I've got my map of the world, which is my wife. It's wallpaper actually, so I felt like. Um, it's cool. So we talked last time about, about January's book, and I want to have a chat about the business of international schools, which I'm really interested in. And uh, January's, you know, studied quite extensively, and he's also working in Asia, which is, the, you know, one of the big growth areas. So, yeah, sounds good, Denry. Uh If you're open to it, let's talk about the business of international schools. Um, a big topic, Dan. Where, where would you like to start? I think we should start with... Um, I'll tell you how I got interested in this. I read this... A uh, book called "The Rise of Transnational Education Corporations" by someone called Hyun Kim, and I actually tried to track. I don't even know if it's if it's a man or a woman. I tried to track them down online. Very anonymous person, and written a really good book. So I'm surprised they're not doing more. I don't know if you I don't know if you know if you know them at all. Um, I don't. I know. I know the book, and I know the name, but I don't know the yeah. Re- really really good book. And it's even though it's like an academic book, it, it reads quite well. It talks a lot about. Um, you know, how these education companies started. Um, so that's what got me interested in it. Uh, I presume you've read the book, Denry, as, as, as you said. So what, I mean, let's start with how did, how, how did it begin? I mean, obviously we talked on the last podcast, I'll put a link to the last podcast. We talked about how initially international schools were just, you know, for the children of expats, diplomats, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, sometime, I think around 20 years ago, they started being a boom with the, the increase in local families that wanted to send their kids and for profit i mean what what do you see as the start of this of this sort of trend of for profit uh, schools uh, yeah so the, the the turn was in about 1996 um when dulwich opened um in in phuket in thailand um well, i'm based in thailand um dulwich has since um lost the license to that school and, and changed but so back in 1996 dulwich was phuket, wasn't it? yeah i went there it became the british school phuket i went when it was dulwich uh, yeah. actually yeah yeah um, so in 2003, something like that, it changed um, brand, but it was the first of the British branded schools to open in Asia, um, as I say, back in 96. And, and that kind of signals a, a turn in the industry from what previously had been slow and steady growth of what we traditionally call type A and type B schools. And we can perhaps get into those definitions um, if you'd like. Um, type A and type B schools have dominated the market and um Dulwich School, um, Puget, was the first um, of the British branded schools. Um, Since then, and particularly since 2014, there's been an acceleration in growth of franchise schools, of for-profit schools, to the extent now that the 80% of schools in the market are for-profit. Now, Um, how... 
yeah, got, interesting. How, do you know how Dulwich started? I mean, what I mean because I was in. I, that's interesting to me. I didn't know that the British franchise schools, however you call it, would have would have started it. I thought it was maybe some independent ones. But how? What what happened? Because obviously, you can talk a bit about. You know a lot about how this happens. I know it's usually a local company, be it a property company or any, any, all private equity. They'll get the kind of fr- the rights. I mean, exactly. do you know how this came about? Did, do you think Dulwich approached? approach some people and said, I want to run a school? Or do you think someone, an Asian business person approached, approached them? And do you know about how it, how it um, began? So um, it, it, is, it is very different today than was the case um, back then. Yeah. Um, in those days, um, and, and Harrow Bangkok followed fairly swiftly um, afterwards um, with Dulwich, it was um, entrepreneurial, um, enterprising bursars in the UK schools who had connections in Asia, either through the governing bodies of those schools um, in the UK, either through their own um, business interests, potentially even um, old boys and old girls from those schools themselves. So they had yeah. their global networks. Uh, and these were, were literally conversations um, in clubs in airport lounges about at the time that the growth in Asia and the opportunity to franchise to to license their brands um overseas and that was certainly the case for the initial conversations um for harrow it was, it was an enterprise an entrepreneurial and enterprising bursar um who offered the brand to a local partner interesting and um and who and who who was starting these schools what kind of people were in asia were, were, were running these like the dulwich and the initial ones um, so, and again, very different now to um, yeah. historically, um, it, then it would have been private um, investors. So yeah. sole proprietorships, um, rich, wealthy um, business people who'd already made their money elsewhere. And in those days, potentially for reasons of legacy rather than for reasons of profit, wanted to get into the educational space. So many of the... Um, traditional non-traditional um schools the original branded schools yeah. um, forays into into asia originally started out um or were funded by their local owners for legacy reasons rather than explicitly for profit although that has has shifted more recently got it and um so Dulwich did this. They've got a few schools. Did they expand quickly? And, and you mentioned Harrow. Like, what was like the second phase? Was was there a bunch of? I mean, because I've seen now, like in recent years, many more British schools. Schools I've you know, obviously Dulwich and Harrow are pretty famous. Most people in England would, most people would know Harrow for sure. Maybe most people would know Dulwich. But now there's a bunch of schools which I've never heard of. You know, and I work in education. But right, what, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get onto that, I guess. But what, what what was the next stage? Like, what did did they open a bunch of schools? Did people follow? Like, what 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 can happen next, as far as you know? Um, so Dulwich um, and, and Harrow were at the frontier. They, they were the first of the, the two groups. Um, so Dulwich now have eight, um, yeah. and Harrow have nine campuses. It's more schools, but there are, there are nine um, campuses. Yeah. Um, Dulwich originally grew faster than um, Harrow, um, and then Harrow's growth over the last few years has been um, more rapid. So yeah. they, they started to see... Um, I guess the, the, the level of risk went down as Asia was developing and as the business models had 
started to prove themselves and they started to see opportunity in other countries um, in Asia. So both groups um, started to expand steadily um, during from 1996 to about 2014, expanded relatively um, steadily and were slowly um, being joined by other schools um, moving into international markets, not not in huge numbers, but as we got closer to 2014, the pace started to pick up. Did did it get? I mean, obviously, there was a financial crisis in in 2000. Do you think that did that affect the start of it, and did that affect Asia as badly as it affected the rest of the world? Um, it certainly did. Um, again, we if we it's a different conversation, but in the majority of these schools, um, a lot of the children are local nationals. Yeah. And it is um, one of the reasons why investors want to invest in these schools. Again, this is a different track of the conversation. Um, They are, to some extent, immune from economic shocks, like, for instance, the 2007-2008 crisis. It is the not-for-profit schools that are populated with expatriate children that tend to be affected by economic shocks to a greater extent than those schools which are attracting um, locals. So, yes, growth slowed down during that period, um, but clearly it, it didn't stop growth. There were still schools that opened during that period. Yeah, interesting. Now, what... Um... How, how did it go? I'm guessing I'm just looking at the timeline. Did because because obviously we'll get onto it, but I mean a, a lot of these schools have changed hands multiple times. I was looking at some, you know, we're actually going to live in Dubai for for a while, funnily enough. And I was looking at some schools there, which if, if you look back a few years ago, they had different names, you know, like mm-hmm. and so they've obviously been acquired and things. But what what happened? Obviously, the British schools moved in. Did then did then a bunch of local people uh, start setting up schools as well? They saw this as a business opportunity and and and, and doing that. Um, so some of those were there already um, and have grown with the market. Um, yeah. Others, yes, saw the opportunity um, and have established schools um, with various versions of British or international school names to yeah. kind of piggyback off the, the growth of these franchise branded schools. Um, but there was this, this a dual track of growth in the franchise schools and all of the um, factors that are um, increasing demand for international schooling in general, which saw you'd either got your, your big investors with deep enough pockets to approach a UK school or even an American school, although there are fewer of them in the market, and to build a, a big 1800 student or whatever campus. That, you know, that's one segment of the market. And then there's the smaller, more local style, for want of a better phrase, investor building the... Um, tier two middle tier um schools at a slightly smaller scale interesting now what um so do you you know talking about the business side of things that's what we're getting into today like do you think i mean i presume running a school must be profitable or there wouldn't have been such a growth I, i mean you know the economics to me i mean i can see you've got a huge startup cost that's that's the thing about starting a school you know you've massive cost real estate construction um, you've got to hire a bunch yeah, of teachers. Um, you've got to you've got to do sales. Like you have to have investors or deep pockets, I'd guess, to even think about starting a school. And I guess that's why it was, you know, be, you know, fairly well established businessman or private equity and stuff who did it. Um, at, at the scale that we're talking about, for many of the um, franchise schools, the, the the British branded schools, yes, um, less so for some of the smaller 
um, again, for want of a better phrase, local investors who may have set up a, a 400 role um, school. Um, I guess a good example of that track would be um, Bangkok Prep here. So Bangkok Prep um, locally owned, not owned by a corporate group, um, not um, franchised. They started off, and I don't know their specific numbers, they, they started off at a relatively modest size, yeah. say 600 students, um, and then have recently moved to a second, much larger campus three years ago, maybe, um, as they have grown and as the market has grown. Um, very, very different development track to a franchise school coming in and opening a school that can take um, 1,800 students from, from day one. Yeah, it's interesting. When when I started working in with Thailand, which was 10, 11 years ago, the, the school we worked with, I'm still in contact with them, was the American School of Bangkok, which is, you know, very official sounding, but it is a for-profit school owned by a you know, Thai family locally. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was interesting. They started off with one campus and they had another campus. Um, and it's funny the whole how it all works because I, I was chatting to a couple of parents about, you know, the school. And they didn't even realize it was a for-profit school. They just thought it's the American school. It must be something to do yeah. with the American embassy. And their kids went there, you know? It was, yeah, it's yeah. funny how, like, these, these co- the companies that run this are very careful about how they brand. You don't find anything on the website, you know, maybe a link to a school group at the bottom. But, you know, there's very branded very much about nothing to do with, with being a corporation or anything. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, if, if one doesn't know, you would have to dig quite deep. Um, within the individual schools' websites and then into the corporations' websites to to find out that they are for-profit schools. Um, yep. And certainly in the case of sole proprietorships that may be um, for-profit schools but are not part of a group, are not franchised, um, you wouldn't know that they were running um, for-profit. Definitely. Now, let's move, uh, I guess, a bit more today into the like 2000s, 2010s. Like you mentioned things are very different today. And, and obviously we talked, I, I mentioned there's, there's a huge number of British schools going, huge number of it. Like what, what is it looking like today? Because I was looking at, um, there's, there's even more schools still opening. Uh, you know, I was, I was talking to a guy in Hong Kong that's setting up charter house schools in Asia. And um, there's, there's a whole bunch of different schools. Now, what's the situation looking like now for all these schools? And, and, and I'm curious what you think if, if, um, if the slowdown because of COVID is going to affect it or, or what. But I guess that's a separate question. First question is what, uh, yes, what yeah, does it yeah. look like now uh, in terms of the, the yeah. growth of these? Um, well, you, you're, you're right. We, we have to separate kind of the, the pre-COVID area. Um, yeah. And then there's, there's COVID and then there's the question mark over whether the post-COVID era will, will, will look the same as the pre-COVID era. Maybe this is just a, a bump in the road uh, and in 10 years we'll all have forgotten about it, we, we can hope. Um, or, or maybe it will significantly shift the path of, of international school growth. Um, so, so today, um, ISC research, 12,500 um, schools in, in Thailand alone, there are 260 um, Bangkok's got 153 um, schools. I actually looked up for, for yourself and John. Um, Czech Republic has got 76 uh, international schools, um, if you can believe it. Um, and yeah, that, that, I mean, that, that's like, I mean, you know, I've, I've compiled what I think is a pretty good list of international schools, and that, that number is, is hugely inflated. That's really, that's including every, maybe a local school that does IB and maybe even in, in primary years, it's 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 including kindergartens and things, you know. Like I think that yeah. the numbers are still high, you know. I mean, Czech Republic, honestly, international schools, even for profit, like a, what a, a real international school. There's maybe ten, probably you know nine, ten is the actual number of actual international schools, and then there's a whole bunch of 
schools, which, you know, maybe it's a Czech school that has an English section in it and it's a state school, you know, but, but yeah, it's, it's a huge, we talked on the last podcast, how to classify these, uh, yeah. but however you look at it, it's a huge growth. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the, the market at the moment um, is significant in size in terms of number. And again, however one defines them, yeah. it is also significant in terms of you know, the amount of money that it's generating for the individual schools um, yeah. and, and for the, the, the franchise holders. It, it's perhaps worth looping back to you, you almost asked the question in terms of um, how profitable are these schools? You know, what, yeah. what is the incentive for, for, for the owners? Um, so, um, and this is this is um, in the public domain. Back in 2012, it was being reported that the schools were making approximately um, 20% profit. Um, yeah. We can debate whether we should be calling it profit or surplus, but profit margins were were 20%. Um, today, um, the ratio that's quoted is 20 to 40%. So you can see that over since 2012. There has been an increasing businessing, an increasing corporatization of education that is squeezing out um, extra profit margin surplus, whatever words um, we want to, to use. Um, that clearly begs the question, where, where's that where's that money going? Um, yeah. So it's going to the, the license holders. Um, obviously, if it's a you know, franchise school, then um, the license holder in the UK or the US um, is yeah. getting some of that. It's going to the management companies. Um, yeah. So, again, the likes of um, Dulwich College International, Harrow International Management Services, Brighton College have their equivalent. Um, they are taking uh, some of that to run um, their management companies. Um, yeah. And back to your point about locals, it's also going to the local investors in terms of turnover rent. Um, right. So for the local investors, they're getting a turnover rent on the property because right. in very few in very few cases do these schools own the real estate. Um, yeah. They're they're leasing it from a local property developer, um, and that property developer, in many many cases, um, wants a school because they're and this is certainly true in China because they have a property development of which yeah. they want the school to. Um, Schools have a halo effect on property and real estate developments. Yeah. Um, so if you can bring a Harrow, a Dulwich, a Brighton College, a Marlborough to your real estate development, um, then you're going to bring commerce, you're going to bring residents to that area. So it's yeah. very attractive from for investors from, from that point of view. Added to which it's attractive for private equity, as we've already said, um, to some extent, international schooling is immune from economic shocks. Um, it is one of the last expenses that parents will cut when they need to tighten their belts, um, whether that's the 2007, 2008 crash or whether that's COVID. Um, it's one of the last expenses they cut. So if you're a private equity firm, if you're a, a pension fund, international schooling um, is a good investment. So on the supply side of things, that if UK brands want to expand overseas, there is local financing available for them to do so. Interesting. Yeah, I, read, I was reading that healthcare and education are typically the two things that have increased above the rate of inflation for, uh, I don't know, the last 20, 30 years. Um, so, yeah. And, and what about acquisitions? Because, like, a lot of these, it seems to be more and more, you know, you hear about things like 
you know, companies, these companies getting acquired, schools getting acquired. Is that, is that something that's kind of happening a lot, you think? Uh, is that, these schools get, get acquired by different groups or do mostly they stay in the same ownership? Um, so not with the franchise schools. Um, so this would be um, with the locally owned schools. The, the modus operandi for the groups that are doing the buying tends to be that they buy sole proprietor schools um, and schools that are in the mid-market in which they see headroom for improvement. And yeah. how they judge that headroom, um, I couldn't comment specifically, um, but it will be that they see that there's headroom for performance improvement across all aspects of the school, and educationally um, and um, financially, um, and in terms of its appeal to parents, etc., standing in the market. So they, they go in and they, they take over, um, again, usually on um, lease terms. So they'll be paying a turnover rent to the original owners of the, of the building um, to manage those schools for a 20-year um, management agreement. Interesting. What, what you, no, sorry. So what you tend to find is that the local owners have, have run the school 10, 15, 20 years um, and they've taken it as far as they can. Um, they become frustrated, perhaps, um, with trying to run the business or um, are a little older um, and that they are willing to have somebody else come in and run the school for them. And yep. the, the, the various, the likes of um, Nord Anglia Cognita um, Gems um, would add that there are lots of others as well, um, would come in and manage those schools for them. Interesting. Now, you mentioned that things were different now. So in terms of the UK school groups, how, how are they doing it now? Because obviously we mentioned there's a lot of, I keep seeing new groups of, of mostly English schools, even Scottish schools I've seen recently doing these groups. How, how are they doing it now? Obviously, is it kind of an established path and people are approaching these schools? I presume it's not still the bursters anymore that are, that are doing these deals. Yeah. Um, so the, the market is much busier um, in that regard. And th- there are whole forums um, investor forums, meet and greets um, for UK schools to meet potential uh, investors. And right. there, are com- there are companies um, all over the world, but certainly in Asia, um, acting as agents to, to make those connections, um, taking their finders fees for making a connection um, between a potential branded school, whether that's in the, the UK, the US or Australia, right. and local, local investors. So there's a whole industry um, surrounding this and what um do any do any of these english schools actually manage it themselves like or is it just pretty much and, and i'm curious like what connected to that what 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 is the involvement because i'm for example i was my own children literally because we're going to be you know living in uh middle east for a while we're, we're thinking of asia in the future so these it's actually a real life situation for me i'm looking at international schools do you what, what involvement do the english schools actually have above you know the name, do we do quality assurances or actually a connection between the schools? Uh, does it vary? Like what, what, what do you think, you know, what's their actual involvement in, in, in these schools and what, because obviously a name is one thing, but I mean, you know, if you're sending your child to like, you know, whatever, like, you know, a Shrewsbury, you think, well, that's a pretty well-known school. They've got a great sporting facilities. They've got great academics. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to get some of that. Like what, what, how do you see what they actually do at the, the English schools? Um, so it, it varies um, and very difficult to, to comment because it varies so much between the, the individual groups. Yeah. Um, the likes of Marlborough College, um, they um, say that they are a branch campus and not a franchise. 
And when they originally set up, they were very clear that they're they're a branch campus, um, clearly um, in an attempt to differentiate themselves from other schools where it is to a greater extent a more hands-off um, relationship. Yeah. Um, um, I can't speak for all schools, but in general, the yes, there will be quality assurance. In most cases, the schools will have at least one, if not two or three, governors from um, the mothership in the UK or the US on the board of the international schools. In the case of the smaller groups, it may be the same two or three governors that are on the board of all of the different um, international schools. Clearly, the larger the group, the more difficult that gets. But there would be governance um, as well. Um, I have done um, CIS accreditations for um, branded schools where the home school um, also inspects. And in this case, it was termly. So they flew over at the franchise school's expense. They flew over a team of teachers who inspected, accredited um, the franchise school um, on a termly basis. Um, So whereas others, um, it is much more hands off. They have licensed the name. There will be quality assurance, but not to the same extent. So it really does vary depending on the, on the, the school group um, and the UK model itself. Interesting. You mentioned Marlborough having the kind of branches. Is there any other schools that are doing that approach as well, that, that it's actually a branch of, of the school and not so much like a franchise? Um, th- there are, but uh, I wouldn't be able to pull the names from my head. right? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yes, yes. And you mentioned American school. I didn't realize that American schools were doing this. I thought it was just, just British schools. Um, so there are a few. Um, so um, uh, Canadian, not American, but Branson Hall is in Jeju. Um, Dwight School, which is American, has got um, in Seoul and, and Dubai, as it happens. Yeah, there's, there's a few, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that's, yeah. yeah. so there, there, are, there are American schools. It is, it is interesting, and it is an interesting question to ask, is why have the British schools um, dominated the market? So British schools, schools that are British in orientation, not necessarily British branded schools, um, make up over 40% of the international schools market. Again, with the caveat that that definition of international schooling um, is very broad, um, but it is over 40% of the market are British in orientation. Actually, it is only 1% that are franchised. That it is only, the Harrows, the Shrewsbury's, the Brightons, the Dulwich's, the Marlboroughs only account for 1% of the total international school uh, market, but over 40% are British. Um, and what, what, are the, what are the other thirty nine percent then? What are the other ones that are not that are not these schools? You mean it's like just a British school of you know, whatever yes, a British yeah, curriculum? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, as you already said, British International School, Paget, British School, Bangkok, um, uh, Bangkok Prep, um, yeah, Dubai it's, British School. Yeah, yeah. Now, what about? Um, I guess China is the big thing, isn't it? Like, is is is. Uh, I want to talk about you know, China and the Middle East are kind of two areas I'm interested in because obviously there's been a lot of growth in, in sort of Southeast Asia and stuff like, but it seems now it's, it's China is where the most schools are opening up. Is, is, that, is that right? Um, so as you say, so Ch- China and the Middle East have been the big growth markets over the last decade. And certainly since in this new era of growth, since 2014, um, China has, and for obvious reasons, dominated. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess, do you think this new, obviously there's some new laws now as restricting sort of, um, I think Chinese, uh, there's all kinds of things. I know some tutors had to be based in China and it seems yeah. like China's clamping down on foreign education. And yeah, uh, yeah. the guy I was talking to from um, 
Charterhouse was saying there was all kinds of restrictions on they had to do a Chinese curriculum. Do you, do you think it's do you think this could sort of stop the growth of these schools in China or slow it down? Um, I, I think it will change um, the way that they grow. Um, yeah. Ultimately, demand for education in China isn't going to go away. Um, yeah. How how that demand is met um, will change over the next two, three, five years, decade, um, as um, it becomes clearer um, how these new rules are going to be enforced, how they're going to be interpreted, um, how they're enforced and interpreted in different regions of China, yeah. um, and what the potential workarounds um, may be um, in order to do business in China. And yep. bearing in mind that the schools are already potentially operating under a number of different licenses um, on, on one campus. Um, so they may operate under one name, um, but within that name, there are several different legal licenses to allow them to operate, let's say, to have kindergarten education, compulsory grade one to nine education, and then post compulsory um, education. Um, right. So the situation may have got legally more complex, but the demand, is, it will still be there. How that demand is met may shift and change. What's, what's your prediction? So we can come back to this podcast in 10 years and see if you're right or 20 years. What's your, what's your prediction? I've put you on the spot here. No one's going to know for 10 years, you know, and if it was a good one or not. What, what do you think is going to happen with the international school sector? You know, we're now, we're recording this 2021, like say 10 years, 20 years or whatever timeline you want to, you want to pick. What, what's going to happen, you think? If you're going to pick some big sort of global trends. Just let me get my crystal ball. Yeah. Give my crystal ball. You're as good as anyone to ask this question, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it very, very difficult question to, to answer. Um, I think we will see continued growth. Um, I think we will see a slowdown um, in growth. Um, there's a lot of talk about... Slowdown in the rate of growth, you mean? But still yeah, in the, in the rate of growth, yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of talk about um, saturation. So um, back when um, I did my PhD, um, I calculated at the time, this was just for, for Bangkok, I did it for a number of markets, but I calculated that there was 20 to 30 percent headroom in the market, um, in essence, excess demand. So um, fees could have gone up by 20, 30 percent and demand wouldn't have gone down um, by an equivalent amount. I'm sure if I ran that same analysis today, uh, there wouldn't be anything like the same amount of headroom um, in the market. Um, but we are still seeing growth. There's still opportunity in the market. So I, I think the next decade will see continued growth, but the rate of growth um, will slow down. Um, it's going to be more difficult to grow in China and the nature of that growth will be different. Um, I think we're going to see an awful what will, the, what, will, what will be the nature of the growth? So I, I think we're going to see more bilingual schools. Bilingual. And yeah. I, think, I think that will be true of a lot of markets. So to, to date, a lot of the growth in international schools has come from um, either um, the upper classes or new middle classes. As the middle classes becomes saturated, um, the premium, super premium and premium schools, um, growth um, obviously is then going to be at the lower end of the middle classes. And therefore, there will be growth in schools to meet the needs of the lower middle classes, which is more likely to be bilingual. 
um, yep. children of lower middle class families, perhaps less likely to go overseas to university, perhaps less likely to have longer term aspirations to be working overseas, see their futures as being based in South America or Thailand or Vietnam or Cambodia um, or within the Middle East, don't see themselves um, living a, a global life, but want an international education and an education in, in English. Um, so that we'll see an increase in bilingual schools meeting lower middle class growth. Got it. Do you think, um, do you think, is, is, grow, is the traditional international school, is that done? I mean, obviously most are going to stay going, but do you think, is, do you, is there any chance that someone's going to open up a new international school of Prague, non-profit foundation? Like, I mean, I, I personally think it's unlikely, but do you think that's gone forever? I mean, the schools are going to remain, I presume, but do you think there's any new ones ever going to open? Uh, hang on, my crystal ball's just, uh, just yeah, reset. Yeah. Um, not at scale. Um, yeah. Because if you were an investor with that kind of money, um, and given the figures that I've just quoted back to you, um, why would an investor not open um, for profit? Um, unless, um, and again, you could ask the same question, unless it was um, an oil company um, opening in a new location, um, yep. And as, as was the case pre-96, um, oil companies funding the opening of schools to accommodate staff children. So there may, yeah, there may yeah. be exceptions like that. But then, you know, again, why, why would the oil company um, not just um, get Nord Anglia um, et al. to run their schools um, for them if that, if that was the case? So yeah. you can certainly see a market where um, in new growing um, locations, um, perhaps in um, Eastern Europe, in Africa, um, we get small not-for-profit schools opening up as they traditionally did to serve a local population, to serve a growing expatriate population, yeah. um, community schools. Um, but at scale, um, prob probably not. I guess yeah, yeah. Too, too much money out there um, yeah. and a proven business model, um, too attractive an opportunity for commercial investors. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I'll tell you a personal anecdote, because as I mentioned, I've been contacting some schools in Dubai, and every school, even like Repton, I spoke to Repton, um, they're offering discounts, 10%, 20% discount. They've, they've even, it's kind of like funny, but they've even got it on their website, some sale, you know, 10% off education. Mm. Like universally, I've only spoken to three schools, but they all did the same thing, which is interesting. I've never seen schools like discounting like that, you know, openly saying yeah. we're giving a discount on fees before. Yeah, so that that's the COVID effect, yeah, um, and the, the the Middle East has um, perhaps been more affected by that than um, some countries um, in Asia, um, but that's that's the return of expats to the UK, the US, um, Australia, um, those schools having places to to fill, um, and um, excess supply, well, now excess supply um, in Dubai, so you yeah. know, a large number of school places. Um, yeah. and the lack of ability of um, the local middle classes to afford those school fees. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, also, I wonder about, because I don't know if John mentioned it in the last podcast, but he was telling me about um, in Luxembourg where he works, the, the, the government is setting up a bunch of international schools. And they're not sure how it's going to affect them, but, uh, yeah. you know, the proper full-on international schools, English, English language, you know, obviously they'll have French as well, but... and. I've, I've noticed that in Czech. I'm not sure how much of a trend it is because I haven't mapped it over many years, but there's a lot of local schools offering 
English language programs now. A lot of parents want their kids to go to these to these schools. Do you think that's a trend that's going to continue as more local countries offer like an English language kind of semi-international school experience? Um, I, uh, yes. Um, we may It may be better to call that um, international education rather than international schooling. Yeah. And then that brings us back to how we define um, international schools, I- indeed how we define um, international education. But we will see um, an increase in international streams um, in local schools um, across the range of of, of price points. Um, Even as is the case in Luxembourg, assumedly they are are state schools or state funded, um, possibly public private partnerships, um, even in state schools offering uh, international streams as well. Yeah. So I think one thing I'd like to talk about is like, you know, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Maybe we can maybe we can have a disagreement here. You know, I've kind of agreed with everything you've said so far, so maybe we can disagree. I mean, my opinion is it's a good thing. I think for-profit schools are a good thing. It's interesting. I read you wrote a very good paper of the International School Gold Rush, I think it was called, which, by the way, includes liberal use of the word neoliberalism, which is a word that only academics use in the, I've never heard that word used in the wild outside of an uh, yeah, academic yeah. paper. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, either, either um, academic papers um, or in The Guardian. Yeah, The Guardian, yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's a good thing. And I guess, and I'm curious what your opinion is. Uh, like, I'm, I'm going to base it partly on my own education. I went to a few different schools, but I finished up at a, at a state school. And it was pretty crap, to be honest. It was it was the Thatcher years. There was a lot of strikes. Teachers were were motivated. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, understanded teachers. And I was reading somewhere that in the UK to pay it cost the government of the taxpayer, obviously, like something like twenty thousand pounds for each student per year. That that's roughly what what the cost is. And I and I and I was thinking, well, there's plenty of good private schools could could educate you for that. So I, you know, for me. Given that the state, and, I, and I'm no like arch capitalist, you know, I agree in the, in the welfare state and things like that. But when it comes to education, I think that the government is not efficient at running education. And if if my parents have the choice of, of being given 20,000 and say, well, you can top it up to another school or you can go to this school, I think it would encourage innovation, people to set up new schools. Um, so I guess from that point of view, I, I think I, I do agree with, with, with the for-profit thing. And I'm, I'm curious what, what you think. <laughs> um, definitely putting me on the spot. Um, and um, I am trained to sit on the fence. Um, So um, my um, PhD um, was looking at both sides of the the debate um, um, and very firmly positioning me um, deliberately, um, otherwise I would have got ripped apart at uh, Viva as as, as sitting on the fence. So so all of my my research has been um, neutral, um, and I've actually, um, on Medium, I've got a paper um, called The Morality of Profit, um, which the, the, the sign-off at the end is that I, I leave the reader to make their, their own conclusion, um, sure. which cl- classic um, sitting on the fence. Um, I, I think um, to turn the question around, we, we have to ask good for who? Um, and you know, there are obviously a variety of different um, stakeholders um, and shareholders um, a variety of different stakeholders w- within this equation. Um, in, it is interesting if, um, and, and again, you know, how does one define for-profit um, education? Oh. Um, so um, James Tooley, um, a researcher from um, uh, Buckingham, uh, Buckingham University, um, he did a study on schools in Africa 
Um, and I think this came up a little bit in your conversation with um, Declan um, on the yeah. podcast. Um, so there are a lot of um, for, ostensibly for-profit schools in Africa that are very low fees, you know, some potentially as, as low as a dollar a day, yeah. that are providing an education to the African middle classes, a quality of which they simply would not be able to get um, from the state system. So in in those examples, for-profit education is providing something much more efficiently um, and it is providing something that the market, the state, is, is simply um, not able to, to provide. So in that case, it, it can only be a good thing. Um, if we look at the other side, if we take these um, the, the branded schools, ultimately, um, it then becomes a question about the, the morality of, of, of profit. Um, and if the children in those schools um, are being provided um, a quality education, does it matter whether or not the school is for profit? Um, yeah. and I, would say does, I would say it doesn't matter. What, what's, yeah, the, yeah. what's the argument? What's the argument against my opinion? Um, uh, it's, uh, yeah, and usually the argument against is morality. Right. Um, r- rarely are arguments against um, for-profit education rational. Um, they are mo- more normally um, emotional and based on some sense that profiting from um, education is inherently morally wrong. There would be decisions that are made um, that affect the education that is being delivered. And that would certainly be true in some cases, though by no, no means all. You know, there are some world-class um, for-profit schools out there and world-class not-for-profit schools out there. There are also some very bad for-profit schools and some very bad not-for-profit schools. Um, so re- really the question can't be about is for-profit or not-for-profit better. It's about what an individual school is doing with that profit and the decisions that an individual school is making about how much surplus is taken out and and, and how much remains. Um, A really interesting point, perhaps some... If we say that the um, the profit margins um, of a for-profit school, um, an efficient one, um, these days between 20 and 40%, um, I gave examples of where some of that profit is going, yep. um, the, the, the brand holders, um, the management companies, the local landlords, but the, you know, the local landlords would be the case if the school was leasing its premises anyway or had loaned the money um, from, from a bank. Um, a question often asked, you know, wh- where does the additional economic rent um, go? Where, do, where does the additional surplus go? Um, a lot of the heads in not-for-profit schools told me when I was doing my uh, the research for my PhD that it goes to teachers in their salaries. Um, yeah. So that if you work as a teacher in a not-for-profit school, on average, in a like-for-like school, you would be paid more than in a for-profit school. Sure. Um, was was a finding of my PhD. Um, Interestingly, that flips around for the heads. Um, the head um, of a for-profit school will earn relatively more than an equally sized, um, similar context, not-for-profit school. Um, and when I questioned the heads why that might be the case, um, their response was, what price your soul? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So Interesting. They, they, they felt 
um, that um, were not quite selling their their educational soul, but potentially compromising their educational beliefs on occasion um, yeah. was what required um, additional salary. Now, again, I am only reporting there what was reported back to me uh, in the PhD. My my personal opinion on that is is neutral. They were just the findings. Yeah, interesting. The whole salary thing of leadership is interesting because I was um I, I know next to nothing about the UK sector. You know, I'm not that involved in, in it. But I was I was hearing I was reading something about uh, you know a lot of these trusts and multi academy trusts and what the the CEO were getting and and there's plenty of these guys getting half a million pounds a year you know which i was like i was shocked i didn't realize you could make that in the state sector yeah, in the uk you know yeah. like, which is more than you'd make at virtually any international school i would think uh for some of the academy heads in the uk that they, they would be that there will be heads that are earning those um salaries yeah um, and in in international schools large um very very large um international schools yes they may be within touching distance of that yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe not half a million, um, but... No, it's still, yeah. generous salaries. Definitely, still pretty good. Um, that, that's that's covered most of the points I want to. Is there anything anything I haven't talked about that you think would, would be good on this topic? I mean, there's probably a million things you could say, but anything specific? Um... Uh, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's also, I guess, another point with the morality of profit. Um, um, the the um, analogy is always, um, in, we... we there's a sense of discomfort and disquiet about making profit from schools, but nobody questions if a construction company makes profit from building the school um, or yeah. the caterer makes profit from feeding the children or the bus company uh, makes profit. Um, profiteering, um, maybe. But there's, there's a really interesting conversation there about where, where, where is that line? At what point does making a profit making a surplus become profiteering and at what point does operating a school efficiently um for the good of the children and um at a world-class level um but also making a surplus um yeah. what, why are the questions about that potentially um being immoral and somehow wrong um it is a really interesting area of, of debate i don't think we'll ever reconcile that um and it was interesting talking to the the heads about how they reconciled that which which in essence was the was the stuff of of my my phd um rather than talking about what happens in the schools in terms of how they do business um it was how how business does the heads what what doing business does to the heads professional identity um and like yeah. i say some said some said um what price um your soul others said um i i love the chalk dust under my fingers but um i get a buzz from the business stuff um as well yeah. so the, there was a whole range of different responses to this this businessing um of, of, of education Interesting. I mean, there's no question about the demand now. I mean, it seems like a lot of the countries where this growth happened is when it was triggered by some change in the law saying international schools were allowed. I know that in Thailand something like that happened, didn't it, where they, 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 allowed, in, they allowed foreign schools to move in. And, and I think, you know, where, where I've heard of schools allowing, countries allowing for profit, it's just triggered a, a huge amount of, of different price range schools. To, to come into it, to come into the country. Uh, yeah. So one of the questions um, and essays that I give to MBA students um, is um, the best thing a country could do to improve its state education system is to ban international schools. Discuss. 
So I, I should throw that question. You've you thrown some difficult questions at, at me, Dan. I should throw yeah, that yeah. back at you. The best thing a country can do to improve its state education system is ban international schools. Discuss. Yeah, I would say that it's an interesting point. The disadvantage of that approach is you'd have a bunch of people who are currently going to the international school that the state would have to then fund to go to the state school. So the burden of the state would increase if you took that approach. So we'd have to spend more money because everyone who goes to an international school has been a local person has been taken out of, of the state system, you know? So I would yeah. say from that point of view, it's going to cost the country more. Um, I mean, the argument... You know, we haven't even talked about it, but the argument is then it's in terms of equality and stuff. I mean, is it, you know, some people would say it's not right for someone to have more advantage in education, you know, and, I, and I've got some sympathy with that. My, my argument would just be that you can't stop it. It's inevitable that people will have, some people will have more advantages. But that is a really interesting point. If, if banning international schools, I mean, has it happened? Has any country done that? Uh, well, certainly um, controlling um, international schools, as we've just discussed in terms of yeah, yeah. Um, China. Um, and um, Indonesia, um, the same. So no, not outright banning, um, but controlling yeah. and, and controlling the the growth. And clearly, the question is a, a provocation, and that there's no yeah, yeah. right or wrong um, answer sure. to it. Um, arguments on both sides. In, in terms of the the tax position, the, the cost position, that the retort to that is generally, um, if one takes the middle class voice out of state education, then one also takes out the impetus for improvement. Um, yeah. So that w there is there is less pressure on the government to improve education, to better spend its taxes um, on um, education because the middle classes have got an alternative option elsewhere and yeah. are being allowed to opt out, want to opt out and are being allowed to opt out of the state education system. So there, there's a drag down effect um, as that middle class voice is removed from um, education. Yeah. Um, one, one of the flip sides is um, that importing international education, importing world-class education, enables a country to fast-track improvement of its own state um, education systems. Mm. Um, although, in brackets, I, I, and it's a, a rhetorical question, an open question, I don't know the answer, um, I wonder whether there are good examples of countries where there has been a transference of knowledge between the international sector and the state sector that would be some really interesting research maybe it's out there but some really interesting, yeah, yeah. interesting research to do because one of the strong arguments would as i say would be they're importing educational quality from which their own state sector can benefit the general argument is um it stops a brain drain um so if you've got international schools um in your country um then you are um stopping um, children, families leaving your country to go and get education um, elsewhere, and yeah. then over the long term, obviously contributing to um, innovation GDP within your own country. Yeah, that, that is interesting. So, yeah, not, not not an easy question to to answer, and as I say, a, a provocation. But when you ask that question to a group of 25, 30 um, senior managers doing a, an MBA, it always raises eyebrows and, and always pr prompts some very interesting discussion. For, for many of them, it'll be the first time they've ever thought about it in those terms. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't support banning international schools. But one thing I would support is that um, I think all politicians should have to send their kids to the state school, state schools, because I think you'd get completely different focus on it if they, because generally speaking, it doesn't affect them in any way. It's it's a, it's a, like you know, it's a vague, a vague something that something that goes on in the background. But I think I'd support that. I'd say in Britain, especially, which is a country I know the best, you know, like 
if, if you're going to be a politician, you can, but you know, you have to use NHS and you have to send your kids yeah. to a state school. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess that's a similar argument to taking the middle class voice out of education by having. Um, yeah, internet. exactly. Yeah, that's what made me think of it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, my, my position obviously would be that they shouldn't be banned. They, ultimately, they paid my salaries for the last two decades. Um, sure. So, yeah, I, I would be without a job. Yeah, no, for sure. Look, generally, really interesting chat as always. Hopefully, we can get you back on to talk about some more topics. Uh, thanks very much. Um, we'll put links to where I don't remember. Are you most active on LinkedIn or I think Twitter? You're no. not so active, are you? Uh, so people can find me on LinkedIn. Various pieces of my writing are on Medium. So people can find the morality of education um, piece on LinkedIn. Just search for for my name. Um, yeah. They could buy the the book, um, yeah. International Schooling, um, the the Teacher's Guide. Um, if anybody wants access to the academic papers, if anybody's struggling to sleep at night and would like to wade through um, five eight thousand words of uh, academic papers on these topics, they can send me a, a message on LinkedIn. Uh, and I'll be happy to share. Yeah. Thanks, Henry. Uh, th thank you, Dan. In enjoy.